Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are we doing? Okay. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, this, uh, this morning, I'm really excited. I've always wanted to uh, preach through a whole sermon series. And uh, I've never really had the opportunity to do that, but Brad's out of town today, and so I figured this is the day that I'm going to preach a whole sermon series. So turn with me to the third letter of John. That was funny. Come on. <laughs> third letter of John. You know how big the third letter of John is? It's small. We're going, we're going to do a whole sermon series this morning on John's third letter. All right. My work's cut out for me. Turn there with me. My name is Robert, one of the pastors here. I'm glad to, uh, to open God's word with you all this morning. So uh, let's look at 3 John. I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll get to it. Father, we thank you for your word. We are asking that you would meet with us through it, that, that as we hear from you, that you, would, that you would change us, that you would mold us into the image of your Son, that you would give us great confidence in your word and in who you are and in all the things that you have done uh, to save us and to draw near to us. Lord, we do ask that the words of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. I especially ask that you would do that for me this morning as I preach. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The third letter of John is a really, it is a really short letter. Uh, there, is a, there is not a whole lot of theological topics to be mined here in this letter. It gets very to the point. There, there are certainly some emphases here we're going to talk about. Uh, but when you think of 3 John, many of you probably don't think of anything. You know, oh, that's the one that I get to read kind of towards the end of my Bible reading plan. I can check that one off real quick. Um, today, I want to look, though, at exactly what issues are, are taking place here. What caused John to write this letter to his friend Gaius, uh, and, and what are the, the things that he urges and encourages God's people uh, to hold to and to, uh, to live like. Um, today, just in our, this age that we live in, it is, it is an age that is filled with all kinds of communications with people, virtual communication, long distance friendships. I mean, think of the connections you can have with people from a far away place just through the power of the internet. Right, um, but it means too that that a lot of our communications can also be somewhat dehumanizing, especially if you think about online opportunities you have to talk to or about people. Even even just a text message between you and somebody else can oftentimes be be completely misunderstood because of the ease with which we talk to one another at a distance. Um, what I think is often lost in this world that we live in especially among Christians, is this notion of Christian friendship or of camaraderie among believers. It can be easy to just kind of put that off to the side and sort of have the appearance of connecting with other Christians or delighting in other Christians. Maybe you're a part of a church. Maybe you have Christian friendships. Um, but, but it's a virtue in America for us to really value a sort of rugged individualism, right? We, we talk about that a lot. But I think this rugged individualism that we do value as Americans is, is just one more area where the gospel needs to, to take root. And, and it's one area where the gospel must take root in our lives. Maybe you're a church member, but your closest friendships, whether they're with believers or not, has little reference to belonging to the people of God. I mean, think about that. How, how often do you think of your closest friends in terms of their walk with the Lord or in terms of their fellowship in Christ with you? It's not to guilt you. It's just to say that I think it's easy for us to kind of overlook the idea that the Lord has brought us together as a people, that we might know one another and serve one another and serve alongside one another in meaningful ways for his kingdom's purposes. It's easy to, to forget that, I think. But John's first epistle, his first letter, 
uh, has a lot to say about the nature and the need of love among God's people for God's people. Just Let me just run through a few passages here with you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We think of righteousness as being a hallmark of walking with the Lord. But John says, yeah, there is righteousness. That is one thing. But loving your brother is on par with practicing righteousness. Or 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's heavy. You think about that. Chapter 3, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, this kind of love that he's describing is not merely a mental assent or an emotional response, but it's it's tangible, it's deliberate, there is effort and intentionality behind it. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is the sign, or maybe the, the, one of the most visible signs, I guess, of whether or not you've even been born again. 1 John 5, 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so this love is summed up by, or it's, it's fueled by a shared faith. It's fueled by an experience of new, new life. These are kind of a, a dual foundation for loving believers. Have you been born again? Well, you should love believers. Do you know the Lord? You should love other brothers and sisters who are in him. And so we come to John's third epistle, and, and while it doesn't have a ton of ideas, it digs deeply into this idea of what it looks like, what it means for us to love brothers and sisters in the Lord, and, and what that says about our knowledge of the Lord in the first place. And to do this, John gives us two examples from within this church to which he is writing, or he He writes this letter to a a friend named Gaius, and then he's mentioning situations going on in Gaius' church. And he he highlights, he he uses two brothers to to illustrate his point. One is Gaius, and the other is a man named Diotrephes. One is a very positive example of what John is describing. The other is, is really the opposite of what John would have these believers to be. So, I'm going to read a few verses, we'll pause and and make some comments along the way, and I'll conclude with a few points of application. Picking up in verse 1, the elder, that's John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let's let's stop there and just examine these words. Think about this. Gaius' truth. What what does he mean by that? That that sounds like a very modern phrase. You know, you think, well, how did that how that slip in there? You know, John commends Gaius and says, because the brothers are telling me of your truth, you know. Uh, what's, what's going on? Is this just Gaius' preferred way of life? Is this just kind of what he, you know, what he enjoys most, what he loves, what, what makes him unique? That's, I don't think that's exactly what John is getting at, though that might be our modern sensibilities for that phrase. No, he's saying that Gaius is so shaped by the truth of the gospel that it is impossible to ignore. It, it is so conspicuous. It is so obvious to everyone who runs across Gaius, and in particular, these brothers who have gone to visit Gaius's church or have stopped through Gaius's living room at some point on their way to other ministry opportunities, that it's obvious that Gaius knows the gospel, loves the Lord, lives his whole life really oriented around the truth of the gospel, of, 
of Jesus Christ. So what exactly is this truth then that defines his life? We'd be kind of silly to just gloss over that. Let's dig in a little bit more here. If you think about John 14, 6, you know, from John's gospel. So the same, same author, same ideas going on in the same brain. John 14, 6 says, and he's quoting Jesus, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying, well, no, there, there is no other way to know the Lord except by Jesus. All right, he, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Uh, everything else is a lie put up and compared against Jesus, who is the truth. Everything else is a, is a, is a cliff, it is a dead end. There is no way of escape except for Jesus, who is the way. Every other pattern of life is really a pattern of death unless you find yourself turning to Christ and finding the life in him. And, and so the same mentality that John is describing here, the same, the same all-encompassing truth of who Jesus is, is exactly what he sees being lived out in Gaius' life. He says, I, I hear that you are walking in the truth. What truth? This truth. Jesus has come to save sinners. He has come to free them from sin and death and reconcile them to God by his life and death and resurrection on their behalf. This is true for John. This is true for Gaius. This is true. Like This, this gospel is the only truth that there is for those two brothers, it's the only truth that is needed for these brothers who have gone to visit. This is the most important good news that can be transmitted to anybody. And not just to John and Gaius and the brothers who have gone to visit, but also for anyone who might hear the gospel message that they declare. So, so really, right here on the front end, I want you to understand that, that what is going on with these brothers who have gone to visit, with Gaius, with John, with anybody else, is they're, they're looking not to themselves, they're looking to the Lord, they're looking to the gospel as the defining story of their lives. This is the one thing that I want you to see and know and understand about me. And that, that is so much the case for Gaius that when these brothers come back to John to visit him, they say, man, yeah, Gaius is walking in the truth. That's all they care about. Or it's the thing they care about the most. And it defines all the other cares that they may have about these different brothers in their lives. So with that in mind, I mean, consider what a, what a declaration this is that John makes in verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I mean, you, you can think about a lot of reasons that you would find joy in somebody, right? You know, there, there are a lot of things that we can delight in in the lives of other people. Surely John has a lot of reasons to be pleased with and happy with Gaius and a million other saints in all the churches that he has traveled through in his lifetime. But, but there is one thing that cannot be surpassed in his life. There is one thing that he holds up with the highest esteem when he looks at other people, and it is, are they walking in the truth? If they are, there is no greater joy that John knows about than to hear that. Man. Man, just, just, just think about that for a minute. Nothing in the world makes him happier. It, it just raises a, a, an interesting point, I think, which, which is that if, if your hope lies elsewhere for yourself or for other people, people that you love, people that you don't even know, but you, 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 you want to, to care for and serve well, if your hope lies anywhere else for them or for yourself, you're, you're just going to be disappointed. For John, and I think for all of us, there, there should be no greater joy than to, to bear witness to uh, our lives when they, are, when, they are, when they are aligned with the Lord, when we are walking with him. That should be our, our greatest joy. It should be our greatest, our deepest desire for one another. It should be our desire for anybody who claims to, to know the Lord. 
So it leaves us with a question. How were these brothers able to perceive so clearly that Gaius is walking in the truth? They have no trouble telling John this is the case. They, they think it's commendable what Gaius is doing. It raises the question, well, what exactly is he doing? How do you know? How do you see? How can you perceive that Gaius is indeed walking in the truth? And so let's continue in verses 5 and so on. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do. In all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, that's the name of, of the Lord, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So what's Gaius doing? What's so exemplary about his life? He does what John calls a faithful thing. He's doing a faithful thing. That thing, I think, can be summed up in saying that he supports fellow workers for the truth. The faithful thing that Gaius does that so demonstrates that he is walking in the truth, that he's walking with the Lord, the faithful thing that he does here is that he supports those who are, who are serving the truth, who are working for the Lord, who are fellow workers with Gaius. Well, what's, the, what's the big deal here? What, is this, what does this really involve? What's this kind of support look like? Well, in verse 5, John describes it as effort. This isn't eyewash. This is diligent work. There's, there's planning behind Gaius' actions. He doesn't just stumble into supporting fellow workers. No, this is, this is work. There's sweat equity behind what he's doing. And yeah, John mentions that these are brothers that he is supporting, but you notice that he also describes them as, at least to Gaius, being strangers in verse 5. These aren't just his pals. In fact, the way they're described, we, we could assume that Gaius has never met these men before. That he, has no, that he has no real context for them other than John's recommendation. And yet, that doesn't seem to matter so much. Gaius isn't really concerned about, about just caring for his buddies. There's, there's more than just kind of brohood going on. This is true fellowship and brotherhood that Gaius is demonstrating and exhibiting to these men. And, you know, the way the Bible is written, it could be some sisters as well in, in this group of people who are traveling and, and, and serving other believers in, in sort of a missionary mode, proclaiming the gospel. In verse 6, John says that, that he would do well, that Gaius would do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. A manner worthy of God. Treat them like you would treat Jesus himself. Why? What, why are they worthy of this? And he, he describes that they've gone out for the sake of Jesus' name in verse 7. They're, they too, like Gaius, like John, like all believers are called to be, they are grounded in Christ. This is their identity. They've gone out for the sake of the name. Not for their names. Not for any other earthly name, but, but for the name of the Lord. And not only have they gone out for his name, but even as they've gone out, they have accepted nothing from the Gentiles. There is no, they stand to gain nothing from this work that they're doing. You know, Paul makes similar efforts in his letters. We read about it, how when he would go place to place and proclaim the gospel, he wanted to make absolutely sure that nobody misunderstood his intentions to be that of just reaping financial benefit from the people to whom he was preaching. S same thing here. These, these brothers have gone out, and they have accepted no, no reward, no benefit from anybody else so that they can make sure that the gospel, that the name of Christ is left completely unsullied by people who might otherwise think that there's some sort of ulterior motive to their preaching. So they have nothing. And, and Gaius sees their need and says, no, you, you let, welcome into my home. Let me take care of you guys. Let me support you. Let me provide for you what you need. Let me make sure to send you on your way in a manner worthy of the Lord himself. 
That's what Gaius has done. That's the faithful thing that he is doing as he supports these fellow workers in Christ. But I want you to notice something about the way that these brothers describe Gaius to John. Their report to John, at least the way John describes it, he says in verse 3, that they've testified to your truth. And then a few lines down in verse 6, he says that they have testified to your love. On the one hand, they've testified to the truth of Gaius' life, kind of the, the worldview, the pattern with which he lives his life. But then in the same breath, the same people, the same conversation, he, they, they testify to the love with which he has cared for them and, and certainly seems to care for all believers, fellow workers in the Lord. And as I read that, I'm just struck by, by how blended these two concepts seem to be. It's not that on the one hand, Gaius has really good doctrine and knows the Lord, and on the other hand, he happens to be a loving person too. Wow, what a match. It's not what these brothers are saying. When they look at Gaius, when they receive the blessings of the Lord through this brother, they, they recognize that this is because of the truth that he knows and the love that comes with it. These two things are inseparable. Man, I just, you know, it, it makes me think, man, how, how much do I want those two things to be blurred together in my own life? How, how much do, do we want these two things to be almost indistinguishable in our own lives? Where does the truth you live by and your love for fellow brothers and sisters begin and end? Should there be a clean cut distinction between the two? I, I think what we're seeing here is that th these two things, these two areas should really be kind of blended together. So that testifying to the truth of your life and testifying to the love that you have for the church shouldn't be really even a separate conversation. But these things go hand in hand. Likewise, our love for Christ and our love for one another, they, they should overlap. The, the Venn diagram, you guys remember those? Venn diagrams? You get two circles, and then where they overlap in the middle, it's like, oh, that's where, they're, that's where they hold things in common. The Venn diagram of the Christian life between truth and love should be, it should just be a big circle. That, that's the example that Gaius is presenting to us. They testify to your truth. They testify to your love. One and the same man. Thinking to Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse 41, this is what Jesus told his disciples. And funny enough, John is the one who's most recently been talking in this particular passage. And it's as if Jesus is speaking to John on behalf of all the other apostles as well. He says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I, love, I just love that phrase, because you belong to Christ. This is not just a matter of loving people for their own sake. This isn't just a matter of, of demonstrating to the world the, the love that, that we have for other believers, as important as that is. No, Jesus is saying, and he's assuming, that for the Christian loving brothers and sisters, because they belong to Christ, is sufficient enough reason. That's it. In other words, your, your life, as you think about the Lord and what he's done for you, it doesn't just stop there, but it also then redirects and it, it's refracted. The love of Christ is, is refracted through the lives of everyone that he has bought and paid for. And, and that instills in us a, a deep desire to love and care for them as well because Jesus died for them too. In other words, you look at a brother or sister in the Lord, maybe in this church, maybe somewhere else, and you say, oh, here's another one that Christ died to save. These are my people too. This is my family as well. Um, not too long ago, um, I uh, invited myself up to Boston to hang out with Jonathan Mosley and Kings Hill Church. 
and um, we spent a weekend up there in Boston, and Boston's a big city. There's a lot going for it. Boston's got a lot of great things. I, however, still have not actually seen Fenway Park from the inside. I mean, I've driven past it. I've seen some of the green, but I haven't actually been in it, and in and, and, and the trip itself, we were just kind of going around doing things. We, we were at church on Sunday morning. They had a baptism service Sunday night. We were hanging out with some brothers and sisters in a few different points throughout that weekend to the point where there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to to do and see a whole lot around Boston itself. But as we were leaving and and coming back home, I was struck by how how satisfying of a trip that was, not because I had maybe seen glimpses of landmarks that you're supposed to see, but because in the midst of that, I had been able to connect with other brothers and sisters there in Boston and in that church in particular, and that itself was such a soul-nourishing, refreshing, life-giving thing for me. I'm sure that you have experienced that same sort of thing in your own life, where you're around other believers, and it's just, it's like the Lord uses that to be a blessing to you. It's like because you're around people who also love the Lord and know him, it stirs up an affection in your own heart to love those people as well. That's... That's, that's, what the, that's what the life of God's people should, should be like. Where our love for the Lord overflows into love for one another. And where it causes us to have a, an affection for each other. That can really only be described as, as something that the Lord has worked himself out in our lives. So as John describes this, as he commends Gaius and and the ways in which he loves these brothers and the ways in which he demonstrates this knowledge of the Lord that he clearly has, John doesn't just tell us about Gaius, but he also then offers a warning about another brother in the church named Diotrephes. In verse 9 he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Now it's not really clear what exactly Diotrephes role in this church is. Clearly, he's still a part of this church in some way or other because he does seem to have a pretty, pretty big influence in the life of this body of believers. Uh, apparently, he's putting people out of the church, which we can ask some questions about the practice of church discipline that they're, they're going with here. But Diotrephes, is, he's, 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 a, he's a leader in some form or other. He, his voice, his opinion seems to matter in some way or other in this church. John has heard things. He reaches out to Gaius. It, it may well be that Third John came in a little envelope with First and Second John, and, and John's like, look, I want you guys to read this letter to the whole church. And then in a separate kind of little note, he says, now, Gaius, let me tell you a little bit just kind of what's going on here. I'm a little concerned about diatrophies. We need to figure this out. I want to come visit you. Whatever the case may be, diatrophies is known by this one phrase in verse 9, and it is is a doozy. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. We don't know what happens to this guy. Maybe we'll run into him in heaven, and we'll be able to kind of ask him how this all worked out. Uh, But man... What a way to be known in the Bible. This is, this doesn't just dissolve, right? Uh, Diotrephes, who loves, who likes to put himself first. And of course, we see all the ways that this fleshes itself out. I, I guess I think, though, that there are two ways to kind of think about Diotrephes. There are two ways to respond to this description of him, to his kind of modus operandi. On the one hand, you can just write him off as just like, well, here, okay, this guy's just a really difficult person. He's just really difficult. 
This guy seems like maybe he's on a bit of a power trip. He really likes whatever authority he seems to have. People respect him. People value his opinions. And so, uh, you know, but he's just kind of, he just let it go to his head. He's just, uh, doesn't that guy seem kind of annoying? Yeah, I wouldn't want to hang out with him either. That's one way to think about it, but, but that's so quickly dissolved because of what John says in verse 11. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. What's, what's at stake here in Diotrephes' is, is life is, is not just like a matter of personality or does he get along well with other people. Diotrephes, this... This whole scenario, it's, it's a matter of, of imitating evil versus imitating what is good. And it's not a matter, strictly, of whether or not Diotrephes will listen to the authority and words of John, though John cl- clearly brings that up. He says, I've written something. Diotrephes doesn't think a whole lot of me. He's not heeding what I've written. You know, we're going to have to talk about this. It's not that John's got some sort of personal vendetta against him. Uh, and it's not just the problem with John here is, is not just that Diotrephes doesn't want to listen to John's words. The issue is that he's not yielding to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. There's something more going on here than just a difficult person. But then there, there's another, there's an alternative way to look at Diotrephes and to see him as just an absolute monster, right? Because it's, it's really comforting and kind of reassuring for ourselves to find in other people kind of the extremes of wickedness and evil and uh, not living in a way that's appropriate for the people of God. And to look at that and be like, well, I, I'm not quite there, you know. Diotrephes takes the cake there. He's the one who's known as the man who just, who just who wants to be first in everything. But the, the seeds, just like we were just saying a second ago, the, the seeds of this way of living are found in exalting the self over, over Christ. And if that's, if that's the seed that is sown that then one day yields this kind of fruit, well, that's a pretty small little kernel. It can be pretty imperceptible for a little while until it does eventually, yeah, start maybe yielding fruit like that. That that sort of thing grows and it flourishes in a person's life incrementally. But I think it's revealed in some subtle ways. And so John, he describes exactly what Diotrephes' way of life looks like. He says he doesn't acknowledge our authority in verse 9. Uh, whose authority, maybe John, maybe some other elders of the church or other leaders of this particular region of churches. Whatever the case may be, Diotrephes cannot be taught. He is, he is focused, he is bent on himself, on his opinions, on his instincts, on his goals. Verse 10, John says that he talks wicked nonsense against us. And I think that's really a revealing statement given how much John wants to emphasize the fact that Gaius is walking in the truth. Diotrephes is, is bent on breeding lies. He is bent on spreading false information, especially the kind of false information that drags guys like John and others down and in some ways, maybe just by comparison, elevates Diotrephes in the eyes of other people. Verse 10, we also find out that he refuses to welcome the brothers, whereas Gaius was eager to support them in whatever ways that he could. Diotrephes refuses to open the door. He's unwilling to acknowledge the Lord's work in and through other people. Or maybe even more subtly, he's just kind of oblivious and apathetic towards the Lord's work in and other people. But it's not just him. He, he really can't stomach the idea of anyone else welcoming them either. And so he stops those who want to welcome the brothers, and he puts them out of the church. And in this way, he's very eager to make disciples. It's just they're disciples in his own image who love and value and think the same way that he does. He's zealous really for his own glory, not the glory of the Lord. 
What's scary about Diotrephes and what should, what should raise our awareness and cause us to, to really meditate and think about and consider his way of life is that he's possibly convinced that what he's doing actually pleases the Lord. There's a, there's a good chance that he, he really thinks that what he's doing, the way he's thinking, the way he lives his life is pleasing to the Lord. But as John tells us, this is actually a way to imitate evil, if that's what you want to do. In fact, he, he even says in verse 11, whoever does, not, or, excuse me, whoever does good is from God, whoever does evil has not seen God. The, the implication is that Diotrephes hasn't actually seen God. And notice, this is not determined by the theology that he co-signs. This is shown and determined by how he embraces the saints. By his love or lack thereof. So as if to underline this point, John concludes his letter with further instruction. Picking up again in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. You hear in John's voice, in the the words that he chooses, there is a real camaraderie. There is a, a genuine love for brothers like Demetrius, like Gaius, that's not to say he doesn't love Diotrephes, but, but it's, it, he's highlighting something here for us. I just want you to see, he, he, he loves Gaius. He, he, I got so much more I need to tell you. I would rather just talk to you face to face, though. And it's not a matter of efficiency. That'd be pretty inefficient. It's not just a matter of speaking and I just want you to hear my tone. That, no, that's not, I don't think, what John is getting at. John, he loves Gaius, and he, he would rather speak face to face. He says, don't be like Diotrephes. Look, I'm, I'm, here we go. I'm transitioning out of my letter here. It's very quick. I'm sending another brother to you. His name is Demetrius. Everybody loves him. The truth itself testifies that, that he is walking in the truth. He, he's living in a way that accords with this gospel, the same way that you are, guys. I'm, we're sending him your way. Take care of him. I'm going to follow shortly behind. Tell everyone I said, hey, the friends here greet you. Would you greet the friends there for us? Each of them by name. There's just so much on display here in this tiny little letter. Do you see that? There, there, there are these big examples, but then there are even these little subtle things that John weaves in to the way even that he concludes his letter to Gaius. So how, how should we live in light of these things? What, what are maybe some things that we can walk away from this letter taking on ourselves? I think number one, uh, and this isn't really in any particular order, but I think just given the way that he describes things here, I think a major thing that we need to be aware of is this, that we, we should be on guard against self-exaltation. All right, if we're honest, it is, it's really a lot easier and, and more natural to our own sensibilities to be closer to a guy like Diotrephes than to Gaius. Right? It, it, it is more natural for us to, if this is a spectrum between Gaius and Diotrephes, it's just more of our nature, I think, in this fallen world to lean a little bit towards how Diotrephes treats people. And maybe it's not a wholesale thing in your life. Maybe it's just with certain people or certain situations. Uh, or, or maybe, yeah, maybe it is kind of something that, that pervades every area of your interactions with other brothers and sisters. But, but think about this, that we need to be 
on guard against this kind of self-exaltation that Diotrephes exhibits, that he loves to be first. Do you you like to be first? Do you think that you should be first, even though maybe you don't say anything about it? When you are first, is, is the world suddenly spinning on the right axis? There are, there are a lot of ways that this subtly works itself out in our lives. And sometimes it's not overtly in the form of self-exaltation. Sometimes it takes the form of just others' diminishment. Not, not only by thinking less of other people, but, but yeah, also by just like not thinking about other people at all. Not just by putting people down in your mind, like, ah, they're not as great as they think they are, but, but actually not even caring enough about another person to think even that. <laughs> right? It's, it's so easy. And, and like I said at the very beginning, this is something that I think is, is a real uh, an issue just in, in this world that we live in right now where it's very, very easy to, to kind of feel like anyway that you're connected with other people just because you sent them a text message or, or because they know your email address or you might FaceTime once in a while and that's good. You know, I, I see what they post online. I know everything I need to know about them. Oh, it's, it's so easy to put a wall up between us and other people that we don't actually even know we've constructed. There's self-exaltation. There's others Diminishment, I wish there was a better phrase for it. I'm sure there is, and half of you are thinking of it right now, and you can tell me later. Uh, but there's also another thing where, where we kind of, uh, tribalism, you know, where we gather together with people who are just like us. It's, a, it's kind of a, 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 a sneaky way of exalting yourself by just surrounding yourself with people who are like yourself, right? Now, all these things, they, they can happen within bodies of believers. They can happen in the local church. They can happen across, across states and, and around the world. It's easy to let other things be the, the, the determining value of, of how we consider brothers and sisters in the Lord, other things besides the Lord's work for them. And, and shouldn't that be the ultimate thing that defines other people in our own minds? Shouldn't that be the thing? Oh, but it's so easy. It's so easy to just put that to the side for other things that are maybe a little bit more obvious in our own minds, things that we think about more, if we're honest. The solution to this, though, is not to just gin up more thoughts of other people. Right? That's not going to work. That doesn't really jive with our nature. No, what, what, what we need is not just to think of ourselves less, what we need instead is to, is to look to Christ, to, to exalt him in our lives, to look to him for, for everything. The biggest sign that Diotrephes doesn't know Jesus is that he wants to be first. And so for us, if we're not going to live that way, if we actually want to love the brothers, if we want to walk in the truth, if we want others to be able to testify to the love that we have for the saints, then what that's going to take is not just loving people more or, or loving ourselves, thinking of ourselves less, but it means loving Christ more. It means looking to him more. And here's the thing, as burdensome as that might sound to your mind, looking to Christ is not a burden. It is a joy. It is a privilege. And it is something that, in my own experience and in the experience of so many others in this room, it means then that as you look to Christ, it stirs up a longing to look to him even more. It's like, it's like the more you look to Jesus, the more enamored you are of him, and the more you want to be like him, and the more you want to see him in other people. And the more that comes to define how you think of other people. Does this person know the Lord or do they not? If they don't, they should. I'm going to help them to do that. And if they do, I want to rejoice in the work of the Lord in their life. I want to do everything I can to see Christ increased in their lives and through their lives to other people. And that comes about not by looking to yourself. And it doesn't come about by looking to anyone else. It only comes about by looking to Christ. Look to Christ. Seek his exaltation in your life. 
That, that's, the, that's the remedy to being like Diotrephes. Number two, so on, on the one hand, we need, to, we, we need to be on guard against self-exaltation. Number two, we should support fellow workers for the truth. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, I think we can say, based on all that we've read here, that the truth of Christ is meant to bind his people together in love and in co-laboring for, for his kingdom, right? So what does supporting fellow workers look like for us? I think, I think maybe there's some really practical, simple ways, actually, that we, can, that we can do this. By reaching out to missions partners or, or pastors planning churches or, or sister churches even in town for encouragement, encouraging one another. Um, you know, uh, even, even something like um, just reaching out via, yeah, via text. How can, I, how can I pray for you in the work that the Lord's doing in your life? Are there tangible ways I can support you right now? Do you need a bag of coffee from the United States? Can I send you that? Right? There are ways that we can encourage people and serve them from afar that, that shows that we love the work of the Lord in and through their lives. Today, right, right after the service, there's going to be a lunch for families interested in or who are already active in a Adoption, foster care, respite care for families who are fostering. There's a whole host of people in this church who are seeking to make the kingdom known by caring for people in those situations, especially children, and not only children, but also the families that are maybe dealing with some difficult circumstances. Well, you may not be necessarily called to do that exact thing, but you can support fellow workers who are doing that by encouraging them. Talk to our family advocacy ministry team. Talk to Laura Pate or Kristen Wise. Ask them, show, tell me, how, how can we support these families and individuals who are doing this in our church? Do they need food? Do they need a bed? What, what can we do? How can we make this easier for the gospel to go forward? It's not that I care so much about these people as much as I care about them. It's that I care about the Lord and the work that he's doing through them. And, and I want to I fan that into flame for their good and the good of others. In a very simple way, it means celebrating evidence of God's grace in and through one another. Re- rejoicing in the work of the Lord in our lives. I think that's what supporting fellow workers really comes down to. And you know, the Lord has given us some really simple ways to do that. Ways that I think we often uh, kind of, we can overlook pretty easily. But do you realize that, that even something like baptism and the Lord's Supper these are two means of grace that the Lord has specifically given to the local church for our building up, for our mutual edification and encouragement. It's not just that as individuals we are reminded of the gospel by seeing someone baptized. It's not just that as individuals we think of the Lord when we receive the bread and the cup. It's that as a collective body of believers in covenant with one another, in this local church, we are, we are reminded not just of the Lord, but of the Lord's work in and through each other. That's why we take the Lord's Supper together and not individually into go bags at home. That's why we are baptized in the context of the Sunday morning gathering and not just privately in a separate ceremony. Because this is meant to instill in us a love for each other rooted in our love for the Lord. That's what the Lord has given us that we might love him more. Don't, don't discount those things. Don't, don't, don't look at Communion Sunday, which we typically celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. Don't look at that as, oh, well, I can maybe skip out a little early, or I can just sort of zone out in the last few minutes. Don't think of baptism Sundays that way. Now, this is, the, this is the culmination of the Lord's work in someone's life, and this is really, in some ways, even the beginning of, some, of the Lord's work in someone's life. And let's, let's celebrate these things together. That's what it looks like to support one another. Gaius, it says, gave effort to support fellow workers. It means there was intentionality and diligence and, and even maybe a little sacrifice on his part to do that. Number three, walk in the truth by fighting for the gospel to define your life. Where is your joy? Where is your hope? Where is your comfort? Are you finding these things in anything, anyone, anywhere but the Lord? 
Well, if you are, you're going to lean more and more towards the way of life that Diotrephes exemplifies. Because all these things, one way or another, they, they terminate on ourselves. They look, they, they look ultimately to ourselves. But if you're looking to the Lord, then, then that changes everything. If your joy, if your hope is found in nothing else but in Christ alone, his work to redeem you and redeem everyone else that he's redeemed by his own blood, that'll, that'll transform you. It means then, too, that we can see the local church as a place and as a people where we go not just to, to receive the truth or where we go to be filled up, but where we go to together be sort of immersed in the gospel with one another. That's what we're here for. We're here to be immersed in the gospel together. To recalibrate our hearts, to recalibrate our minds, so that we are thinking of the Lord, looking to him for everything. And then because we're always looking to him for everything, we can't help but look and see what he's doing in each other's lives. And rejoicing in his work, and seeking how we might be able to propel that further through one another. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this truth that you have called us to look to you. Not to ourselves, not to anyone else. Even as we might seek to serve others well, Lord, we cannot look only to them, but you have called us to look to you to exalt your name. And by exalting your name, you bring joy and, and unity and love to your people. We see the fruits of that in each other's lives, and we rejoice. So, Lord, help us to delight in one another. I pray that, like Gaius, we would seek to support fellow workers and that we would see each other as fellow workers for your kingdom's causes because of what you've done. Lord, help us to delight above all else in your Son, that we might be a faithful witness in this world for all that your son is and does for his people. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.